to Psalm 96. We haven't done this for a while, but it would be a good morning to do it. Let's stand as we listen to the Word of God. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord. He's most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the nations are idols. The word really means worthless fakes. But Yahweh, the God who's really there, the God who is what he is, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. So ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth, and say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. They're rejoicing at the prospect of the divine judgment. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and everything in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They'll sing before the Lord. For he's coming, he's coming to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'll help us by your spirit to truly hear your word the word that you yourself have given to tell us the truth about you so that we can truly respond in the ways of faith and obedience and hope that your word invite and call us to. We pray in Christ's worthy name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're still in the first month of the year. And so often I have an opportunity to preach about this time of year. And when I do, instead of uh, going to like a particular passage, and usually we're going through a book of the Bible, which is a great way to do it, just study section by section of portions of God's Word. But every now and then, for me anyway, it's helpful to kind of take a step back and try to get the big picture again, so that the different parts even more fruitfully 
get put into their place in my understanding and how to learn and live in light of them. And so that's one of these messages. This is one of those kinds of messages this morning. The truths that we're thinking about are key to the beginning of the Christian life, but the more I think about it also, the same truths that are crucial to the beginning of our Christian life are the ones that we need throughout our Christian life. We just go deeper into them and understand more widely and wisely how they apply. That, I hope, is going to be true of what we think about together this morning as well. And so the main idea of the message came from Romans 1.21. It's um, sort of a striking sentence and phrase that I've reflected on from time to time, but it hit me again. I was doing reading to prepare for the equipper sessions that Pastor Keith and I are doing on Sunday evening. So go with me to Romans chapter 1, and just to come upon this phrase to kind of launch us into our bigger ideas this morning. Paul is giving the story, the sad story, of the decline of true religion in connection with the decline of a true knowledge of God that was happening in the human race because of our rebellion. And so it plays out this way according to Romans chapter 1 and beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodlessness and wickedness of men who are suppressing the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is what? Plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So a lot of times you people say, well, you know, there's not enough evidence for God. Who knows? Who knows whether who can blame the unbeliever? This passage says God can blame the unbeliever. So that men are without excuse. There's no reason in this God-created world where the creation itself is a theater for his glory and then we've got our conscience and then we've got providence to watch, there is no reason for this unbelief. Men are without excuse. For although they knew God, it's the story of humankind is ignorance of God and then things kind of evolved in our religious ideas and it got better and better and then we got to monotheism. That's not what happened. They, humankind, knew God. But you suppress it and you distort it long enough in unrighteousness and you're gonna mess things up. And they did, we did. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish heart went dark. That sentence, they knew God, but they didn't glorify him as God. That's still possible today. People can kind of know about God. And, you know, there are all kinds of reasons that people engage with God and religion and spirituality. They grab this idea and this idea, different places about God, and they kind of say, well, now I know God. 
but it's so distorted. They knew God, but they didn't glorify him as God. That is, they didn't think any longer of God rightly and truly in accordance with the truth of who he really is, his attributes, his character, and so they increasingly failed to rightly engage with him and relate to him. And forgetting about God, we forgot how to be human. And that's playing out more and more in our day and in our time. So I wanted to think about the reverse of that. What does it mean to glorify God as God? That is, what does it mean to have the truth that he's given us, he's self-disclosed, of who he is and what he is and how he is, and to rightly respond to that truth, thus bringing him glory. Because our glorifying him is always a response, a right response to what he is and who he is and what he's done. So how do you rightly glorify God, the God who's really there, as God? And I want us to think of it in three basic ways that I think it'll be obvious why we chose these. First of all, Since God has revealed himself as a good and gracious and kind and generous God, a good shepherd, a gracious savior, we glorify him as God when we trust him and we trust in that goodness. That's how you honor God as God. Secondly, he unmistakably in the Bible has also revealed himself as a great and majestic king and holy, awesome, in the deep sense of that word, Lord. And when you really take into account his greatness, his majesty, his transcendence, his holiness, his jealousy for his own glory, when you realize he's the great king, you glorify him by submitting to him. Whole-souled submission, devotion, and allegiance. That's the glory due his name that we're to ascribe to him too. And then thirdly, he's revealed himself as the end-time judge of everyone and everything. So we glorify God as God, ironically, when we put our hope and our hopes in that final judgment, in his final activity of judging, of sorting things out and putting things right and making things once again the way that they're supposed to be. And so first of all, God has revealed himself through his works and words, just watching him in the Bible. In Exodus chapter 34, he is abundant in loving kindness. He is great in mercy. He's slow to anger. He'll not leave the guilty unpunished, but the emphasis is upon his graciousness and his goodness. And that just finds gathering momentum throughout the Old Testament. David's beautiful, beautiful, inspired reflection. Yahweh is my shepherd. Well, what does that mean? I shall not want. 
And then he just goes beautifully, phrase after phrase, to spell out what the goodness of God means. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil, for you're with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. And it comes to this beautiful climax. I'm sure that goodness and mercy, chesed, loving kindness, is going to pursue me all the days of my life. And then I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is good. God is kind. It comes to its climax, the goodness of God towards us to do us the true good that we desperately need when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish. That's what we deserved. But we'll have everlasting life. Paul reflects, what should we say to these things, things like this? If God is for us in this kind of way, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously with him freely give us all things? God is good. God is generous. God is kind. And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther has a wonderful reflection on all of this. In his catechism on the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Luther says this, what is the meaning of the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. It is God saying to us, you are to regard me alone as your God. Okay? But then he goes further. What does it mean to have a God? When it says thou shalt have no other gods, have God only. What does it mean to have a God? Or what is God? Luther says the answer is God is that in which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. All good will come from him. And when I need refuge, he'll reliably be that refuge. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. It's the trust and faith of the heart alone that make both a God or an idol. If you're relating to the true God who really exists, your faith and trusts are right. But if you do not have the true God, your trust is false and wrong and sure to fail. For these two things belong together, he says, faith and God. Anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say, that's really your God. So the intention of this commandment, therefore, is to require true faith and confidence of the heart, which flies straight to the one true God and cling to him alone. It is, as the Lord, it is as if the Lord is saying to us, see to it that you let me alone be your God and never look for another. In other words, whatever good thing you lack, look to me for it and seek it from me. And whenever you suffer distress and misfortune, 
crawl to me and cling to me. I myself will give you what you need and help you out of every danger, often not in the ways we might have guessed. Only do not let your heart cling to or rest in anyone else because he's good and the source of all good. And when taught by the word of God, watching the ways of God in that self-disclosing word, you've come to believe he's good. You'll glorify him as God by really trusting him. Secondly, because he's revealed himself as a great king and holy Lord, the supreme authority, we glorify God as God when we submit to him and give him our supreme allegiance. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been bestowed on me by God the Father. Therefore, go tell this message so that you turn everybody else out there into disciples of mine who learn and live by my teachings. In fact, teach them what? To obey everything I've commanded. God's revealed himself as a great Lord. If you confess with your mouth, if the gospel truth brings you to the place so that you've come to learn and recognize and realize from the heart that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved. 1 Timothy 1.17 says simply and beautifully, now to the king. The king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. There's a great little book called Right Side Up. I've recommended it from time to time, want to recommend it again. It's great for just beginning the Christian life, but I go back to it time and time again for it because it just freshly expresses what it means to live a Christian life, even if you've been living it for a long time. And he has a section on really relating to God in Christ as our King. Because I know and trust that Jesus is God's good and perfect King, I will fall down before him and submit my entire life to him, knowing because he is good and perfect, that whatever he commands me to do will be excellent and for my good. I will place my life in his hands, submitting to him as my king, knowing that that will mean life that is truly abundant. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Christ has come to give life, life that's abundant to the full. When by the work of God's Spirit we treat Jesus as the ruler of everything, then our whole lives will change. Because we're upside down and we need to be turned right side up. How we treat our family members, how we use our money, how we use our time, what we watch on our screens, how we relate to our next door neighbors, how we speak truth rather than lies. Knowing that Jesus is Lord means letting him have final say over everything. The Holy Spirit works day by day to keep us trusting Jesus as our King. And the Spirit helps us to make Jesus our ruler in reality. 
He gives us the strength and wisdom to listen to Jesus in his word and to do what he says. Some of my favorite verses in all the Bible, most compelling to me, are in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Summarizing, clarifying verses. And now, what does the Lord, your God, require of you? Do you ever sometimes just think, ah, I wish, I wish I could just sum it up somewhere. <laughs> that whole 66 books of the Bible. I wish someone could just kind of, this is the kind of passage that helps me in that way. What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. Wish I had more time, but fear. Take him with utter seriousness. Do not mess around when it comes to engaging with God. So he requires that of you. You'll seek him and find him when you search for him with all your heart. Fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways. That's just, there's no part of your life, there's no avenue you're on in your life that you're not to be obedient to God in. Walk in all his ways. Then at the heart of it is to love him. To be affectionately, from the heart, devoted to him. And to serve the Lord your God. And again, the only ways that you can serve so infinitely great and good a being is with all your heart and with all your soul. C.S. Lewis, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, is of true, if true, is of infinite importance, the only thing it can't be is moderately important. Serve the Lord with all that you are and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your good. The Bible gets very specific. What scripture says, God says. And if you profess to be submitted to Jesus the King, that very much means that you're going to live by the Bible. I want to put it that practical, practically, that real, really. The Lord's authority to command and to guide and his promises to save and to bless are mediated by his inscripturated words in our Bible. Faithfully interpreted, received, and applied. When we defy or disobey or even disregard and neglect our Bible, we're defying and disobeying and disregarding God himself because what scripture says, God says. Now this applies just as much to congregations and churches as it does to individual believers. And it applies to to a church's leaders too. Decisions in the life of a church where Christ is truly being regarded and responded to as Lord and King and Head are not made on the basis of pragmatism or preferences by people or pastors. They are made on the basis of what does the Bible say? 
What does the word of God written call for us to do? Jesus is king and he rules by this word. And so he's revealed himself as good and gracious. Glorify him by trusting him. But he's revealed himself as authoritative and holy and supreme in authority. Glorify him by habitually and wholeheartedly submitting to his reign. And then finally, since he's revealed himself as the end time judge of everyone and everything, we glorify him as God when we put our hope and hopes in him and his return to reign and to reward, to recompense. I don't think we anywhere near take seriously the reality of what the Bible says about God's final judgment. Sometimes we get kind of stuck on the logistics of it. Well, how could he judge the whole world? You know, it's like, don't worry about that. He'll figure it out. Here's one of the passages. Ecclesiastes is kind of a mysterious book, but it comes to a crystal clear ending. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And behind that exhortation is this. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, every hidden aspect of every deed. You can't see motives. God can. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And he will repay. He will recompense. Romans 2, God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. J.I. Packer summarizes it this way. Based on passages like 1 Corinthians 4, 5 and 2 Corinthians 5 that we'll come to in a minute, where it says... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That doesn't mean merely show up. It means we're going to be manifested. We're going to appear. We're going to be revealed. You read the old Puritans about this, and they thought about it a lot. Everything about everybody will be exposed on judgment day, and each will receive from God according to what he or she really is. You know what's weird? If you're anything like me, it's like, you mean other people are gonna see? And what occurs to me is like, does that matter more to you? It's like, oh, I thought only God was gonna see. If I'm more concerned that other people are gonna see, I've got a problem right there, don't I? Don't worry about the logistics. Worry about the core reality. 
The Lord Jesus himself gave us some striking specifics. And I know all Sam and some of us, including me, will try to say, well, I can't mean da-da-da-da-da, and we'll try to explain it away again. But just try to listen and receive it. For I tell you, Jesus says, that everyone, everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken or posted or tweeted. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. I would think if we took that seriously, we would put a guard on our lips that isn't currently there. Just think, I'm gonna have to answer. I'll appear before the Lord Jesus and he'll go over that conversation and I'm gonna have to give an account. Positively, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose his reward. Every act of kindness that nobody else saw, but you weren't doing it because anybody else was watching it. You were doing it for the one you were helping and you were doing it for him. That cup of cold water is not gonna go unrewarded. For the father who sees what's done in secret, Matthew 6, he will reward you openly. The prospect of final judgment is a warning for the unbelieving and the disobedient. He who believes on the Son has everlasting life. He who rejects the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And if you're here and you've never really turned in true repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, then that's you. And you need to keep coming to hear the word of God and the gospel and the good news and the way of salvation until you're sure that you have repented and you have believed in him. There's final judgment coming. But that's not my focus this morning. Because the reality of divine judgment is an encouragement for the faithful believer. In fact, Paul says the news of God's judgment and even ever judging every secret thing is part of his good news, according to Romans 2.16. The reality of the judgment of God is good news, first of all, because of the great truth of justification. Justification means on that day, because of Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, the verdict in the case of the believer will be righteous. And you will be righteous with the righteousness of Christ in the eyes of God on that judgment day. That's good news for you as a Christian who've been declared righteous by faith alone. But the judgment of God is good news for believers in other ways too. So many of us live trying to please people, important people maybe in our lives. And somewhere along the way, it kind of dawns on us, this is impossible. <laughs> sometimes it's because some people are unpleasable, but sometimes they're flawed, you're flawed, it's a mess. And so try, Paul said, if I were still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. To know, ultimately, that the only verdict that matters is God's. 
the kind of person you are, the kind of life you're living. Live in light of his verdict, his judgment. That's the only one that ultimately matters. The judgment of God is good news because it means finally the wrong shall fail. It doesn't look like it's failing so much of the time now, but it most certainly is going to. The cross and the empty tomb were D-Day that guaranteed how all of this is going to turn out. Judgment Day is when the triumph of righteousness comes to its climax and the wrong shall fail and the right prevail. Guarantees that glory, gladness, and reward will be enjoyed everlastingly by all who like the Lord Jesus himself in this life in the midst of evil entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Every act of kindness, every act of benevolence and service including those unnoticed and unseen by others will certainly be rewarded in an intensified experience of blessing as recompense and payment for that action. We'll be rewarded. We'll be repaid for what we've done. Don't be too spiritual for that. Jesus gives us the incentive reward again and again to help motivate us to live faithfully. Justice will be done and will be seen to be done. That will include vindication for those who were faithful to what was right and true when the world and even the worldly church turned unfaithful. Psalm 37 gives a preview. Do not fret, don't be agitated because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like grass, they'll soon wither. Like green plants, they'll soon die away. That whole psalm is great to read sometime this Lord's Day. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he'll do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and your vindication like the noonday sun. You may be in some kind of situation and where you think there's just no justice and this isn't going to work out and it's not the end. This is the end. When if you're faithful and righteous, that's going to shine like the noonday sun. For Christians, too, there's this coming judgment at the Bema Seat. We must, as I said, all appear, be revealed before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be paid back according to what we've done while in the body, whether good or bad. I know it raises a lot of questions, but live with the core reality and we'll explore the questions another time. There's so much to learn from Paul's own perspective example at the very end of his life and ministry, when he's giving his charge to Timothy, his protege, who's going to continue the work after he's killed by Caesar, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. That judging activity of God guided Paul's perspective and it motivated him to stay on course. Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and, a view, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, 
The Good News translation paraphrases, because he's coming back to rule as king. Live in light of that reality. Paul did. And so when he comes to the time of his departure, he can call it, he can say, he can look back because of God's grace that he responded to rightly, I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. What is that? Now there is laid up for me after the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who've longed for and loved his appearing. There are contemporary examples too. The doors, the curries, and their families who send them off. Peter spoke up at one point, good old Peter, <laughs> said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? And Jesus doesn't say, Peter, that's a rude kind of question. He says, truly I tell you, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields with persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So don't get weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why is it in vain? Because there really will be at the Bema seat, a number of people who, because they stayed faithful to this word, will really, truly hear. Sometimes I think it's overdone and overused, but some will really, truly hear from the master. After the review is over of what you've done in the body, well done good and faithful slave. Now, enter into your master's happiness. Behold, I'm coming soon, Jesus said at the end of Revelation, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. As I thought about this, I thought this might be a good guide for me. Live each day as if at the end of the day you were going to stand at the Bema seat of Christ. So, how do we glorify God as God? Thinking of him and relating to him in the ways that truly please and honor him. Well, He's shown himself to be good. He's revealed himself to be kind and gracious. Trust him. He's shown himself in his word and works and ways to be holy. 
to be righteous, to be the king. So you glorify, and they all go together. You glorify God as God when you submit to him and to his word. And he's let us know, he's revealed, and he's given us previews throughout the biblical record of his judging actions. But he's told us he's going to return to reign and that reign will begin with the work of judging and reviewing, of repaying and recompense. Live in that reality. Live in hope. Put your hope and hopes in his return, in his reward, in his vindication. Be guided by the prospect of his well done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know you because of the gentle grace of the Holy Spirit working by the word and the gospel. You've given us the gift, if we're born again, of knowing the truth about you. That sets us up to be able to glorify you as the God you really are, good, majestic, and returning. Help us to live, trusting, obeying, and hoping. In Christ's worthy name, amen.